Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valsler, and with Sarah Castor-Perry. Let's take a look at what's been hitting the headlines in science this week. Sarah, what have you got for us? Okay, well, I've got a story uh, about how scientists at Columbia University in New York have uh, figured out how one of the key proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease spreads through the brain. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative condition of the brain caused when specific proteins in the nerve cells known as beta amyloid and tau proteins stop performing their proper roles in the nerve cells and instead clump into beta amyloid plaques or tau protein tangles. Now, the tangles formed by the tau proteins were what the researchers at Columbia focused on. And post-mortem studies of human patients with Alzheimer's disease had suggested that an area of the brain just behind the ears known as the entorhinal cortex might be the starting point for the tauopathy, that's the degeneration caused by the abnormal tau proteins tangling up where it started. So the researchers set out to engineer mice that would produce the abnormal human tau proteins in their entorhinal cortex so that they could follow the progress of the disease. They stained sections of the brains of these mice at different ages to look at where the tau proteins were and whether they were normal or abnormal. And their results backed up the autopsy studies done in humans. It does appear that the tau proteins spread out from the entorhinal cortex rather than it being a case of abnormal tau developing independently in separate areas of the brain. One of the authors of the study, Karen Duff, believes that there are several take-home messages from their study, published in PLOS One, one of which is that we now have this reliable mouse model that can be used to study the disease further. And another is the sort of rather unusual discovery about the movement of the tau proteins themselves. The way that we looked at these mice, by the places we chose to look, we were able to say that the tau is actually left one cell and moved to another cell. And that's a very radical piece of biology. It's suggestive of something like prion disease, uh, you know, mad cow disease, where you get a sort of transmission of the abnormal protein through the brain. When this abnormal tau spreads through the brain, it stimulates perfectly normal tau proteins in other cells to switch to being abnormal and start to tangle up. Now, Karen was keen to stress that although these proteins move through the brain in this way, Alzheimer's isn't catching, i.e. you can't catch it from someone else. And although Karen doesn't know exactly how these tangles move through the brain, the final take-home message of the study was that it could point the way towards new therapies. The earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease, when those tangles are located in that entorhinal cortex region, when tau is seen there, patients tend to not be demented. So it's sort of like a very, the earliest stage of the disease before you actually get overt dementia. So the idea would be that if we can actually identify the disease at that stage and, and start giving some therapies based on this, we might be able to just trap the disease at that earlier stage and prevent people getting worse and demented. There's a couple of approaches that could be used, um, but probably the, the sort of most targeted approach would be something called immunotherapy, um, where you use antibodies to basically latch onto the specific protein you're interested in removing, and it, it obviously removes it by a cellular clearance mechanisms. And, you know, you can develop those antibodies to tau or an abnormal form of the tau, and perhaps it will be able to catch the uh, tau as it's outside of the cell and before it gets into the next cell. So you can sort of trap it in the extracellular space. 
And the use of the immunotherapy that Karen mentioned is already being tested, so it represents a positive step forward towards treating Alzheimer's. Thank you very much. That's fascinating stuff. And I'm actually going to stick with the brain, but I'm sort of coming from a physics perspective instead of a medicine perspective. And that's that a clever super resolution microscope has allowed researchers to watch changes in a single neuron in the brain of a live mouse. The exceptional level of detail even showed tiny protrusions called dendritic spines moving and changing shape. Now, the best way to learn about cells is to observe them in context in a living animal. So to do this obviously requires a very high-resolution microscope. But even the best optical microscopes, ones that we look at with our eyes that use visible light, uh, they cannot discern features smaller than around two to 300 nanometers. That's half the wavelength of visible light. To go further and see smaller features, you need to use an electron microscope. But for that, the materials that you're looking at need to be prepared by freezing or by staining or by coating in gold or something like that. And so you can't use it with living tissue in vivo. Sebastian Burning and his colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Biophysical Chemistry got around this optical limit by developing a type of stimulated emission depletion, or STED, microscopy. Now, this relies on the cells containing a fluorescent dye that can be excited by absorbing certain frequencies of light, but also de-excited by using other frequencies, so you can sort of switch them on or off. Now, by using lasers of different frequencies and varying the light intensity across a sample, these types of microscopes are able to only excite a tiny, tiny portion of the field of view, and that effectively increases the sensitivity from a minimum of 200 nanometers down to less than 70 nanometers across. Burning and colleagues then pointed their special microscope at the brains of mice genetically engineered to express something called enhanced yellow fluorescent protein, or EYFP, in their neurons. They employed a glass window in the skull so that they were able to observe live, healthy neurons in situ, actually inside the brain. And by taking images every few minutes, they were able to see dendritic sp spines moving and changing shape. Now, these are small processes that sort of stick out of neurons and they're involved in receiving signals from other cells. So understanding those could help us to get to grips with how the brain grows, how it develops and how it changes over time. Fascinating work published in the journal Science this week. That is just completely amazing that we can see things so tiny. It's really, really exciting stuff. Well, since first humans first set foot in Australia, so we're changing tack a bit now, we first set foot in Australia 50,000 years ago, and we've pretty much spelled disaster for the continent since then. Uh, the first settlers wiped out the continent's megafauna, including species of giant kangaroo, and the early English colonists introduced foxes, cats, camels, rodents, rabbits, and even poisonous cane toads and rampant African grasses, all of which have had a devastating effect on the ecology of the country and have driven many of the native species to extinction. So when an Australian professor of ecology published a paper suggesting that the answer might actually be to accept that we're never going to return Australia to how it once was and to introduce even more non-native species, including elephants, to at least stabilise the status quo, it was bound to be controversial. Chris Smith spoke to the author of that paper, the University of Tasmania's David Bowman. I've recently published a paper in, in Nature which is very controversial uh, opinion piece about the environmental management challenges in Australia associated with uncontrolled fires, 
feral animals and how they've interacted with the unusual biogeography of the Australian continent. We've sort of started a cake mix and we're mixing up all of these ingredients and do, do we try to actually make this cake rise and work as a cake or do we just leave it as some sort of weird slurry? Because all of the introductions which have been made and the changes to fire regimes have all been effectively accidental. So we already have a very mixed up ecology and the possibility of returning our ecology to anything like Captain Cook would have seen is an impossible dream given the record extinction rates which have occurred in Australia. So we're in a real predicament and I think that the lesson is that humans have to manage nature now. We're in the Anthropocene. We can't just assume that natural systems are going to be self-riding if we've really hammered the natural systems with quite dramatic stresses and introductions. And it's very controversial thinking. But I've been living with these problems for 30 years and it was about time somebody said something, I thought. So what you would argue is that in the past, these introductions and these things have been either mistakes or ill-conceived. But actually, if we use our brains now and start making changes which are based on science and clear evidence, then we could actually work with the problem we've got to help to resolve it and, and arrive at a better outcome than if we just let things go and try and conserve the status quo, because the status quo is an unstable one. Yeah, really well said. I think that's the key point. We've moved on, and we've obviously, as ecologists, we have much greater understanding of the need for stabilising food webs and the impact of what, what are called trophic cascades when you disrupt food chains and how that can actually result in dramatic landscape um, scale changes. All of this thinking is sort of, is really ripe, I think, to trialling things because what we should be striving to do in Australia is, you know, forget about the extermination paradigm and return Australia to its sort of 1788, you know, Captain Cook status and more manage impacts and reduce the, the impacts of these what are called threatening processes. And, and, and through that, with that human engagement and possibly using uh, some animals as ecological machines to achieve certain outcomes, we can basically steer or stabilise our systems way better than if we just, just let nature take its course. How has this gone down with the Australian public? Because if you talk to people in Australia, they have been very heavily educated about the impact that introductions and feral animals have had on Australian ecology. And for an Australian ecologist to then turn around and say, we need actually to do this more, they must have quite a strong reaction to that, don't they? Yeah, it's very interesting. Amongst my colleagues, I've been very pleasantly and warmly surprised at you know, elephants, crazy idea, but wow, isn't it great that people are putting all of the options on the table and stirring up this debate? So a lot of support. Amongst the media, it's sort of a little bit polarised between people who just absurd joke, laugh, or, yeah, that's a big idea. How do we control some things which are uncontrolled if our 
plan A approaches aren't working because we're about to run into these problems and I think that the way to advance this is that you have lots of debate and ideas and some trials so we can start being a lot more adaptive because we haven't even talked about climate change which is going to is another layer on top of this horrible complex mess we're in. So how would you do this in a safe way so we don't see the cane toad problem all over again? Right. Well, one thing which is really important to bear in mind is that there's a global dimension here. And I got a a fascinating email from uh, a game manager in Namibia pointing out when you project at the 100 to 1,000 year perspective on Africa, it's very difficult to see a future for a lot of animals. Just the sheer environmental changes driven by people pressure. Here we've got a lower population density in Australia. We could have game parks. And, you know, a lot of Australians, that's repugnant, but a cattle farm is okay. But how would we do it? Of course, we'd have to trial things and we'd have to invest money. I would like to see somebody work through the calculation of saying, well, let's look at all of the available options and a few crazy options to control this out-of-control grass. Let's look at it all and let's cost them with the knowledge we've got available and what new knowledge would we need, you know, and start a genuine engagement because at the moment all that's happening is that people are saying this is a very bad weed but in a in a holistic sense nobody's doing anything. I would call that an out-of-control situation. And, you know, I'm certain that there are solutions to stabilise this but I'm not quite certain how to do it. That was Professor David Bowman from the University of Tasmania speaking to Chris Smith. A little bit more news for this week. If you're on a diet, it seems that the best thing to do is to dine with slow eaters because our eating behaviour changes to match that of the company that we keep due to a subconscious mimicry response that causes us to match our dining partners bite for bite. It's been known for a while that the company we keep can influence our behaviour at the dinner table. People do eat more when others eat more and less when others limit their intake. And now researchers in Canada and the Netherlands think that behavioural mimicry might be the reason. Writing in the journal PLOS One, Roel Hermans from the Radboud University at Nijmegen in the Netherlands disguised his lab as a restaurant and set up a hidden camera to observe eating habits. They then got 70 pairs of young women who'd not met before the study and invited them to share a brief dinner lasting around 20 minutes. The researchers then counted every single bite that the women took. There were 3,888 bites in total and they recorded when they took those bites in order to determine how many were mimicked bites compared with non-mimicked bites. Now they defined a mimicked bite as one that takes place within five seconds of the other diner taking a bite. The results showed that volunteers were significantly more likely to take a mimicked bite than to take a bite outside that five-second window. And this suggests that the subconscious mimicry was playing a major role in the decision of whether or not to take each bite. Previous studies in behavioural mimicry have put forward a a possible brain basis for this behaviour in which perceiving an action influences the activation of a group of nerves known as mirror neurons. And in this case, it would be mirror neurons in the motor system 
system that would control for the motions required to take a bite. And that then means that the person perceiving that action is more likely to mimic that action because of the increased activity in these particular nerves. It is also possible that in this particular case, the diners were just monitoring each other's actions in order to maintain a similar eating pattern, perhaps to keep the conversation flowing. And as the meal went on, the amount of mimicry actually reduced. So the researchers split the 20-minute dining session into two blocks of 10 and found that the women were more than three times more likely to mimic in the first half of the meal than in the second. Now, because they were strangers when they arrived, the researchers think this is a getting-to-know-you period where the mimicry is enhanced. Understanding the behaviours that influence our food intake can help to people to take more control over their diet and be more mindful of the factors that actually alter how much we choose to eat. But this research can also help to find ways to curb the social influence of more damaging behaviours, such as smoking and drinking alcohol. So it sounds like a bit of fun, but actually there's a serious message in there. Well, now with a look at what else is making scientific headlines this week, including a brain scanner that could eavesdrop on the conversations in your head, here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. The conversations we hear, and even the ones we have in our own head, have been decoded by scientists at the University of California, Berkeley. Activity in the auditory region of the brain called the superior temporal gyrus was recorded by implanting grids of more than 30 electrodes in 15 volunteers as they listened to various words and sentences. The researchers, led by Brian Paisley, could then use the observed patterns of brain activity to predict what the volunteers had heard. Different brain sites were representing different frequencies, and we could use that understanding of the relationship between the sound frequencies and the brain activity to try to predict what the sound was that the person was listening to. One potential application is, is this perception process similar to internally verbalizing or imagining speech? Could it be applied to development of different neuroprosthetic devices for communication, for example, in patients who are severely disabled or severe paralysis that have no other means of communication. Caldera eruptions could be predicted many years in advance by regularly monitoring the composition of magma found below. Calderas are one of the largest types of volcanoes known. They can remain dormant for hundreds of thousands of years, but have the potential to become active, releasing so much magma in the process that the surface of the Earth caves in. By analysing samples of pumice from Santorini in Greece, providing records of magma activity in the build-up to Santorini's eruption in the late 1600s, Tim Druitt from Blaise Pascal University discovered the presence of rock crystals that only form in the decades leading up to an eruption. There was this long period of dormancy before, many thousands of years, and yet suddenly something happens to form all these crystals. The processes that were priming this volcano for this big eruption actually occurred on a very short time scale, and it really would be sensible to monitor these better to improve our chances of picking up with a reawakening of these, uh, these systems. Honey could hold the key to keeping wound infections at bay. Wound infections can often be hard to treat because bacteria form a defensive barrier known as a biofilm, which can impede the ability of antibiotics to access the affected area. Now a team at the University of Cardiff, led by Sarah Maddox, have shown in a culture dish that medical-grade manuka honey can dismantle these biofilms, making wounds caused by common bacteria like Streptococcus pyogenes easier to treat. If you 
apply honey whilst you're growing the biofilms, you get a statistically significant reduction in the amount of biofilm that grows, which suggested it would be a useful prophylactic treatment. But we also found that if we grew the biofilms for 24 hours and then treated them for two hours with the Manuka honey, we could um, get a, a total reduction in the biofilm biomass of about 85%. And finally, a massage could speed up muscle repair and recovery after injury. Whilst massages have long been used in physical rehabilitation, the mechanisms behind their beneficial effects were unknown. Now, performing massage therapy on male volunteers after heavy exercise and analysing muscle biopsies, Mark Tornopolsky and colleagues from McMaster University found that just 10 minutes of massage resulted in reduced inflammation and increased production of structures called mitochondria, which give cells energy. It certainly is very encouraging that we can reduce inflammation, which might help someone to recover faster and uh, get on to their next training bout. And we know from many studies that endurance exercise and having greater mitochondrial capacity is a good thing and can uh, reduce the incidence of diabetes, obesity, can improve muscle function in older adults. So I think anything that enhances mitochondrial function is likely to have significant clinical benefits. And the work is published this week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Mira Synthalingam there, and if you'd like to follow up on those or any of the other news stories we've covered this week, the stories and references are available at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.